Hello! Please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Hellraiser traces the Cenobite bloodline to Pinhead. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas and Jesus wept because he's just a little baby. Oh. And I am Thomas Mariani and this is The Pod. You downloaded it. We speak. Yeah. We do. We do do that. Yes, despite all the letters we get saying, please, sir, don't. Please stop. Don't speak. Both of you. Guys, stop speaking. <laughs> no, your suffering will be legendary. <laughs> yes, for sure, yes. Uh, welcome, everybody, to the Devil Edge Devil Bill, where uh, every week, Adam and I uh, cover a good and a bad feature we picked at the end of the previous topic. And, uh, you know, we should point out, first episode of October, every October, we like doing a full month of horror spooky-themed episodes. Oh, isn't it great? The, the fall season, Adam, here and robust and ready for us to cover so much horror stuff. Yeah. Alright. Don't get too excited! Whoa! Whoa! I gotta turn down the audio! You're blowing up the mic! Whoa! <laughs> Sorry. Whoa! Barrel of excitement here. <laughs> yes, yes. But, uh, you know, it's always fun to, to kind of get back into the horror spirit of it all. And uh, this time, we're doing a topic I know, Adam, you're pretty excited about, genuinely. Because we've covered Clive Barker yeah. in general on a previous October. In that episode, we somehow avoided uh, his main claim to fame... Uh, Hellraiser, which we are devoting uh-huh. an episode to now, because uh, the week this is coming out, there's going to be a new Hellraiser that will debut on Hulu, and also it's like the 35th anniversary of the original movie coming out, so it's a lot. It's a whole lot. Yeah, no, I've I've been a Clive Barker fan, obviously, since the first Hellraiser when I first saw it, and I've kind of held true that, yeah, Freddy and Jason and Michael Myers and Leatherface are all great. Like, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of great movies in those, but as far as even as simple as something like character design, you don't beat the Cenobites. You don't beat it. You don't beat the the uh, sort of complex origin of these characters. You know, the complex origin of what the the La Marchand puzzle box can do. I mean, it, it, there's just so much rich mythology there, which not necessarily has translated very well, especially in the subsequent sequels uh, since the first one and maybe the second one. But there's just so much there to grasp and gleam onto. It's sexy, it's dirty, it's gross, it's violent, it's gory. The score, even. I mean, it's just something about Hellraiser that just really revs my engine. Yeah, and I mean, Hellraiser was something where I was always like sort of aware of Pinhead, as he's often nicknamed, even though it's not a name that Clive Barker prefers for the character. No, see, he's the lead Cenobite. Right, lead sent by his credit in the first film, which we'll talk about in a bit. But also, I think he said the nickname he preferred was like the Hell Priest, right? Exactly, the Hell Priest. Which, because I've read all the books, learn in the original novella Hellbound Heart. There's never really a name given to the character. 
Um, it's just that the Pinhead character uh, has more speaking lines than any of the other Cenobites. So it kind of became the head of that group. Um, so lead Cenobite really is probably the most proper term for him. Pinhead, well, I mean, that's what people identify him. But when you really think about it, it's kind of stupid at taking away from the character. He's got Pinhead, he's Pinhead. Right, it was like originally started as like a nickname at like the makeup effects crew, right? And, and it then just stuck, and then it turned into like a derogatory nickname. I think in the third movie, someone like derogatory says like, "Oh, well, you looked at Pinhead or whatever," and then it just stuck. I guess it just feels like such a stupid term. Like Hell Priest sounds kind of cool. Like that sounds dark. It sounds sinister. Lead right. Cenobite even works because he was the one doing most of the speaking. But Pinhead, come on. I've always hated that name. Well, I mean, for, for me, with, like, the sort of the Hellraiser of it all in general, like, I would watch the first two Hellraiser movies in high school, and I remember liking at least the first one quite a bit, as we'll talk about as we get into the, the show itself. Um, and then I got kind of got turned off by some of the stuff that happens in Hellraiser 2, like, near the end in particular. And then everything yeah. I'd heard about, like, the sequels, which is, like, oh, especially, like, oh, it's, it, it was legendary for a while. It's being like, oh, it's the franchise where there's so many direct-to-video sequels, and they're all so bad, and they're all so terrible. But... In prep for this show, Adam, I watched all ten of the currently released Hellraiser movies. I own them all. I've seen them all. Right, right. That's Some how I was able to do this, because most of them are not available for streaming, <laughs> unfortunately. Oh. Or fortunately, depending um, on the particular one. But honestly, watching all ten of those movies, I can say like my biggest hot take is I only really heavily dislike a couple of them. I wouldn't say most of them are good but I would also say at least, like, there's something interesting about most of them to where I could see, like, especially even some of the direct-to-video ones where it's like there's an interesting ambition that if this was a bigger budget it could work or even there's some ridiculously silly stuff. And I think particularly Hellworld is such a dumb fucking movie, but it's kind of fun. But it's kind of fun. No, it's, it's yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. No, I completely agree. Uh, I, I kind of like most of them as well for different reasons. I know a lot of them aren't good, but there's certain things, like you said, like if there was more of a budget behind it, like this could really work. There's one that I really dislike and one that I vehemently hate. And there's one that's just kind of like, this is lame. But for the most part, I think they're kind of fun. Yeah, I guess we'll as we go along, as we get to, if you're a regular listener, you know our usual segments near the end where we'll talk about a couple of the other movies in the franchise. But uh, we're here to talk about specifically uh, two movies that we picked at the end of the last episode. Uh, the good pick, uh, which was one of your choices, Adam, which is the original Hellraiser from 1987. And yep. then uh, my bad pick, which I has a choice, but credit to our Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash dedbpod. Uh, they put voted in a poll between my two choices, and we end up with Hellraiser Bloodline. Uh, so interestingly, despite the fact that the series is mostly straight to video, we're talking about two of the theatrical releases. The first yep. and the last theatrical release of the franchise. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Hellraiser. Hellraiser. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, <laughs> uh, you beat me to it. Oh, oh we, we have our fun here. But let's start off with Hellraiser. Beyond any terror you have imagined. <laughs> A nightmare. 
No. Unlike anything you have witnessed, <laughs> is born. Because within these walls, the unholy is unleashed. Hellraiser, a film by Clive Barker. We'll tear your soul apart. <laughs> So Hellraiser uh, came out September 10th, 1987, uh, directed and written by Clive Barker, based on his novella, The Hellbound Heart. Him actually directing this movie was mainly because uh, he had seen a couple other early adaptations of his work and didn't like them, so he decided to actually get behind the director's chair. Very rare for an author to actually direct a film adaptation of their work. Incredibly rare, but also for that to be like, yeah, all right, we'll go with it then from a studio producer standpoint. Like that, it's almost unheard of. Yeah, there's like a few examples, like a Michael Crichton, or even, of course, before this, there was the infamous uh, Stephen King of it all. <laughs> yeah, which we talked about all the way back in like what, episode eight? It's like 12, I think. It was a very early episode. Well, uh, still early, and I hate it. <laughs> Adam doesn't like his earlier work. You can tell that the, this movie is definitely made by a first-time filmmaker. There's definitely mm-hmm. a few like awkward bits and pieces that like feel like okay, this isn't someone who's extremely experienced behind the camera. There is still like a fascination that makes like any of the weird choices of Barker and kind of work with the weird ethereal tone of the movie. Oh, I completely agree. Uh, I mean, yeah, it is a first-time director, but you could tell it's a first-time director who is really trying to get his vision across. I mean, some of the camera angles might be a little sloppy or a little weird. I think that's the charm of the movie. Though at the same time, I do appreciate that like, any interview you see with Barker talking about this movie, he is always very thankful to like the crew for actually like working with his like sort of ineptitude, as he would put it. Like He's very humble about that. A hundred percent. My favorite Clive Barker interview I've ever seen, I think it was on the the special edition, like 25th anniversary Hellraiser DVD, Blu-ray or whatever. And it's Clive Barker sitting there and they're all in the, like a room where it's dark and there's chains. So and Clive Barker's like, this is the last time I ever talk about this son of a bitch movie. <laughs> you're like, yeah, because <laughs> like, he's done with it, man. But he knows how important it is, too, which is great. I mean, oh, God. I love this movie. I love this man. This is going to be a lot of fanboying for me. I'll try not to. Right, but what do you think separates him just as a director overall? Because um, he only directed this movie, Nightbreed, and then Lords of Illusion uh, after this. Um, what do you think separates his sort of like directorial style from like a lot of other horror filmmakers, in your opinion? I don't think as a director he was great. I think he did great movies, but as a director, you could tell like he's he's new. The passion makes up for the lack of directing skill. Like he's he knows what his story is. He wrote the fucking thing. Like he wants to show you all the stuff he can possibly do to push the story. See, that's a thing with like any sort of director writer in general, where it's like someone who has written the screenplay. But I think the additional layer of being somebody who like wrote this originally as a novella and then putting that onto a script and then putting his vision as much as he can through the camera lens. I think that adds a whole nother layer where like this movie feels so much more sort of like ethereal 
than a lot of the other sort of like supernatural slashes from around this time because it feels so much more like this is a weird like journey into a bizarre place with even down to just the basic setting of this movie which is kind of infamous for the fact that it was shot in England and they had a lot of English actors who were doing American accents but the New World Pictures who financed this movie in the second movie Roger Corman's other company was like oh you know what uh, we really need to make sure this is very Americanized so we're gonna dub over people yo Frank <laughs> Frank, Frank, yeah. Frank is, like, the best example. <laughs> Good God. It's terrible. It's really bad. It's, it's really bad. Which even the, the, the actor, uh, Sean Chapman, has said as much. Like, he originally had, like, an American... He's a British actor, but had an American accent and everything prepared. And then he was just like, it's so flat and wooden. Like, that voice. It doesn't fit at all with what I was trying to do with the character. But at the same time, what I like is that, like, with stuff like that, or even just the weird setting of, like, it's in England, but they never mention specifically England as, like, a setting, it does feel like it's just this weird out-of-time place. And even, like, the people who have these weird overdubbed accents, like, Frank is mostly shown either, like, in, obviously, like, his weird mutated, like, growing form or in flashbacks. It adds, like, a weird, like, ethereal thing where it's just, like, Frank is this otherworldly creature at this point. He's not a human anymore. And even his voice shows that he's just like he has a different timber that's on a completely different sound wave to everybody else. Mm-hmm. no 100% and then you got Andrew Robinson who's just this weird dude in the movie like he's good but he's weird mm-hmm. like just kind of the way he acts and he's kind of cool with like his daughter being really sexually flirted with with that other guy and like it, it's a really weird group of people like every normal person in this movie is strange Kirstie to Uncle Frank to the dad to Julia, who is fucking great. But everybody in this is just off. There's no normal person in this movie. Everyone's a little off kilter. Right, which, like, like I've heard some people say, like, oh, that kind of turns them off of the moving. But at the same time, for me, I think that really works because you're already going to deal with, like, these weird Cenobite creatures. But I just like that even the base reality of this is, like, slightly uncanny valley, almost. Where it's just uh-huh. like, oh, these are, like, recognizable, like, humans. But at the same time... Humans. Humans, humans. yes. Right, right. yes. The, but at the same time... They have these weird eccentricities, which is why, like, especially with this movie, it's one of those where, like, we often talk about sort of character likability and how much that can invest you in a movie. But I think this is a great example of a movie where, like, all these people are kind of assholes, but they're intriguing assholes at the same time. Like, even Kirsty is arguably the most sort of, like, innocent, and even then she immediately is just like, oh, wait, uh, you're Frank, right? Uh, why don't I, like, completely sell him out <laughs> and have you, like, fucking bring him back or whatever? Like, she still has, like, that instinct to, like, sell somebody out at the same time. Like, these people aren't the most traditionally likable, but they're still incredibly fascinating characters. No, 100%. Yeah, like, don't be wrong. I love Kirstie Khan. I love Ashley Lawrence. <laughs> I got to meet her. She hasn't aged a day, and she was very sweet. Uh, actually, I got to meet the whole principal cast. <laughs> I'm jealous. No, I'm sorry. Let me pick up these names that you just dropped, Adam, and bring back. <laughs> Oh, really? I can keep going. Simon Baffert, Nicholas Vince. Oh, too many uh, names. Clive Barker, yeah, Andrew Robinson. I'm going to get back. Oh, okay. I made them all. Yeah, no, the thing about Kirsty Khan is, like, it's very relatable in a way, because, like, she cares about her dad. She's not too crazy about Julia, but she's like, oh, I'll give it a chance. I'll you know, like, fine. You kind of get it. She's this fish-out-of-water girl trying to, like, have some kind of relationship with her father, because it's probably the only family she has left. But at the same time, she's like, oh, I'm going to sell everybody up the river so I can still live. Like, yeah, you get that. That's real. 
That's the thing about mm-hmm. it. It's real. Like anybody in that situation would do that for the most part. I mean, I don't know what your relationship with your family is. I know what mine is. <laughs> All y'all motherfuckers are going to go meet Leviathan. But yeah, I totally get it. Like it, nobody in this movie is cookie cutter cut and clean. Like it's not the pure girl that you see in, you know, the final girl sort of stereotype. It, it's none of that. Everybody is, feels like a real person. And yet it's this weird sort of quarter turn to the right or left where it's almost fantasy like right yeah that there, there's a bit of like an unreality that makes it kind of like already off kilter before even the cenobites actually come but in. it's very subtle you know right. it, it's one of those things where like i did see this as a very young child and i saw freddy in nightmare on elm street probably before this friday 13th and i saw this and this one always stuck with me like it scared the shit out of me but the whole thing felt weird Right, because even as like as like over the top as some of the characters could be in like Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the Thirteenth, like those kids seem like vaguely recognizable kids, like from like right. you know, the counselors of Friday the Thirteenth or Nancy Thompson in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street versus like Kirstie you haven't quite like seen before, and especially this movie's dealing with much more sort of adult subject matter with particularly like the infidelity and a lot of the sexual themes that are going on. This is like very much outside of like that even basic thing as like a kid who loves horror movies. It's like, oh, there's a teenager. I'm gonna grow up and be a teenager someday, and oh they're gonna face off against freddie or jason it's like no but i even remember as a kid the scene at the dinner where the whole family's around she's like oh if i keep having another one of these i'll end up on my back or whatever it is and the guy who said there's like so why not lay on your front or whatever <laughs> like he, he basically tells her i'm gonna have sex with you right and the dad and her dad's like oh, 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 oh. like this is weird they all feel like people who went to an insane asylum to prove that they're not crazy. It's the uncanny valley sort of thing. It approximates some kind of humanity here, but at the same time, like a lot of the major feelings that they have or the major sort of arcs are based on like really true feelings. Like with, you mentioned uh, Julia, played by Claire Higgins in this movie. She clearly has this like sexual frustration with her relationship with uh, the Larry Cotton character and is thinking back to like, oh, that wistful affair I had right before my wedding with Frank. And the moment she sees, like, the idea of, like, oh, Frank is actually here, and he can come back, it's this, like, unsettling, unnerving thing to her, but it kind of dissipates when it's like, but I can also get what I want, which is me deep dick in this guy again. <laughs> There's this great, like, mix of emotions where it's just, like, even the moment something supernatural is introduced, it's like, oh, it's terrifying, but... I can also get what I want out of this, right? I can get something out of this. And that's like a, it's a thing that can make someone in theory look unlikable, but at the same time with Julia, you get that sexual frustration. Like Larry is kind of a dork who doesn't really seem to be that. Kind of. (laughs) I cut my hand. I'm going to pass out. I love that. Yeah. Which is like, cuts the nail. Just like, Oh, just look at it. I'm going to pass out. That's so great. But yeah, no, I mean, and that's the thing about the whole movie. I mean, and I think that's, honestly, if you look into it, the backstory and sort of what the, they had to deal with the MPAA and all that on this movie, the whole movie is sexual. Like, that's the point of the movie. It's about repressed sexualization and sort of demons that are involved with that, you know, and, and I think Julia is probably the biggest example of sort of playing that on screen. But everybody in the movie has that. Like, that's literally, every character is going through the same thing. I think Julius is kind of our, uh, I don't know, looking glass into that world. The Cenobites in this one, I mean, I'd argue that as we get into later sequels, it kind of gets 
pushed to the front a little bit more, but inherently they're S and M sexual creatures. That that's the point. It's pleasure through pain, and I think that made a lot of people uncomfortable with this film and the franchise in general. And I mean, yeah, we ended at part four in theatrical, but to me that's a shame because. I think people wanted the run-of-the-mill slasher that was happening around this time, and this is not that. Pinhead doesn't, at least in this one, like slash anybody's throat. It's all like this weird, ethereal, crazy, heaven-and-hell sexual tension that was not done before and hasn't been done since. A big thing that, in terms of, like, sort of the, the slasher thing that you're talking about, this is not too long after, like, we, we've kind of talked about this on the show, like, the sort of big boom of the slasher is from, like, Halloween coming out in 78 to around, like, 1984, and then we started getting, like, some of these other movies that trying to experiment with, like, doing big stuff with the slasher uh, that kind of tries to deviate, like, this is right after uh, Friday the 13th Part 6, where they're trying to be a bit more meta and comedy-focused, and people weren't responding as well to that. With Hellraiser, like, this was a very big success when it came in, I think because it's a bit of what you're talking about, where it's this more fantastical, like, bizarre, fascinating idea of just, like, oh, the, the slasher villain is from, like, another realm entirely. Like, he's coming into our world. Well, he's straight from hell. Like, that, that's the thing about it. Like, there's no question... Where Pinhead and the Cenobites are from. They're from hell. Biblical hell. I don't know. I don't know if the title really sells that, Adam. I'm not sure. Was sort of being like unearthed from where? I don't know. Like what's being like, raised as a <laughs> But I guess the thing about it is like, yeah, it's from biblical hell and everything, but it's not in the way that anybody recognizes hell. Like they don't have horns, they're not big red demons with pitchforks. It's this weird sexual pleasure for pain thing and i like yeah it was successful at the time and yeah it it kept on for another three movies in in the theaters but then it kind of died because i don't know i i i think people aren't as accepted to this type of idea but yeah i think the one where it really starts kind of like going off the the deep end is like hell on earth hellraiser 3 it's in like the same era as like freddy's dead the final nightmare or jason goes to hell the final friday where it's like oh we're gonna do like big over-the-top silly things and make this fun and that was just after like two previous movies that were much darker much more sort of presented like a lot of these themes that we're talking about here so it feels like they almost like okay we got hellraiser 2 very shortly after this and we like are kind of tired of that particular motif. Let's have fun with Hellraiser. It's like this isn't really a fun idea. This is like fucked up and weird. <laughs> it's horrible. It's disturbing. It's dark. It's crazy. Like this this movie is supposed to play with your deepest desires and like make you feel uncomfortable. That's the point. Once you put Penhead on a city street in New York or Chicago or wherever the fuck, you've you've lost. Pinhead shows up in that club and makes a seedy Cenobite and a barb tender Cenobite. You're done. You've completely damaged everything that the movie and the lore is supposed to be. It was weird watching this the first time. I distinctly remember being like, wait, Pinhead isn't in this a lot. That's weird. Because I'm used to like, from the cultural osmosis of who Pinhead's supposed to be. Yeah, it's like eight minutes. Something yeah, it's like, like eight, around eight minutes of screen time, I would say. Yeah, and it's it's so fascinating in this movie. Like, what I love so much about this version of the characters that starts to dismantle around the end of Hellraiser 2 is that they're like the Switzerland of, like, the slasher villains. In terms of just like, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. like, we're neutral ground here. Like, you, someone opened the fucking box, and we have to get some kind of blood. So, like, we need something. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man, you open it, we came. What's up? 
we gotta take something back with us. So what are we doing here? What are we doing here, guy? Yes, but there's like a neutrality that that's so fascinating because they don't have like specific motivation or anything in this movie. It's just like a box got open. We got we got to do some shit. Like we need some retribution. Come on, let's let's bring this on. And I love that in this movie where just the moment they come in, there is no like reason. There's no humanity there, despite the fact they're humanoid. These creatures are just like, yeah, we need something. You know, whether it's like you or Frank, doesn't matter. We just need some blood. Oh no, man! Once they find out Frank escaped. And they know that Kersey knows Frank. They're like, they're all about Frank. The thing about this movie, like, yeah, no, give us Frank, give us Frank. And then, which to me really works because it just shows how evil they really are. Because at first you get the idea, like, Kersey could bargain with them and give you Frank and you let me live. They're like, all right, cool. And then they get Frank and they're like, no, we want you to. You're coming with us. And she figures out a way out of it. But no, dead ass, they were going to kill her too, take her with them. Because they are pure evil. And I think that's why I sort of glommed onto it in the beginning. That's why I still love it so much. Because you don't need that much explanation to these characters. They are pure evil. If you are somebody who knows about the Bible or hell or whatever, they are demons from hell. You don't need any more than that. They are evil but they do not need a reason to do what they do. Right. But at the same time, I do like the fact that they're not even like angry toward Kirstie or anything when they decide like, oh, you know, it's more of just like, well, it's a two for one sale. Like, you know, there's two. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's total. (laughs) It's passive aggressive fucking evil. Like, eh, I guess you come up with us. What's up? Like, I love it. It's a, it's a job to, to me watching them. It feels like they're just doing their job. Right. that's, That's their job. It's a bit more of like a bureaucracy thing as opposed to like a real animosity, right? They're reading they're reading the sales script. If you see by our chart here, it looks like our blood uh-huh. uh, intake has been a bit down this quarter. So I think we got to take two of them here. Let's, let's so, <laughs> so I've heard you're not happy with your wireless service. Hey, chatter, I'm going to need those TPS <laughs> reports by Monday. <laughs> what do you know about God health? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, uh, we we went into the while we're talking about the Senate, so we might as well talk sure. specifically about like Pinhead is played by Doug Bradley, who uh, played Pinhead for the first eight movies in this franchise. A gem of a man, right? All, all the interviews, he seems like a very yeah, much a gem, nice dude. I met him too. I, you, you mentioned you. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that's one of the names I picked up earlier. Um, yeah. But <laughs> but. But with Bradley, like, what I love about his portrayal, he even said this as much that, like, in uh, while he was being directed by Barker, he kept being told, like, just do less. Bring it down. Like, don't go too over the top. of. And that's the beauty of it. Wouldn't, like, if it were you or I in that makeup, wouldn't you want to be big? Right. Be like this big, snarling demon. That's what you naturally would do. Right, as opposed to Bradley, what very much in this movie has this, like, very sort of, like, demonic tone, but at the same time, it still is very, like, without huge inflection, without, like, a lot of monstrous boisterousness. Even, like, the lines we talk about, he yells them, but it's not in, like, a boisterous, like, I am a demon from hell. It's just, like, you open the box. It's just loud. Right. It's not with an exclamation point, but a very firm period, every sentence. We have such sights to show you. You're like, that is amazing. No, I completely agree. It, it's it's not loud, it's not boisterous, but it's authoritative. Yes. Like, this guy is in charge, at least of this sect. 
which we won't get into, but if you read the books, there's a lot of different sects of Cenobites. And uh, these Cenobites are part of the rule of the gash, is what they are. Right. But to, to get back to some of like the more human elements, like we mentioned like sort of the, the sexuality and all this other stuff, like right from the jump where we do get like Frank's sort of origin as he is like opens the box, gets the box, and then like is torn apart. Like you get immediately like that mixture of the pain and pleasure where he's like he wants to like go to the breaks. Like he's somebody who clearly has lived such a huge life that he's like, I can't come, quite frankly. He's like, I need something no, hundred percent. Yeah, no. Yeah, I need something weird and adventurous and, like, bizarre. So, I like, I found out about this box, and apparently it's, like, some weird sex thing. And it's like, oh, it's way more than a weird sex thing, dude. Way more than a weird sex thing. Frank also has a uh, 1950s greaser switchblade. So, good for him. Right, and all that is stuff that, like, fascinates uh, Julia with... I, like, even when we get the flashbacks of the sex scenes with her and Frank, they are much more raw than you would see in, like, any other, like, horror movie around this time. There, There's, like, any of the sexuality, even in, like, the sequences where she brings men from, like, the bar or whatever to, like, feed Frank his blood. There's, like, a bit more of, like, an interesting sexual tension that isn't in like so many other horror movies like that feel much more like sexless like literally like there's that all sorts of studies about how jason or leatherface are trying to like punish those who have sex versus no the sex is like both the crime and the fascination here so basically a lot of the sexuality whether it's from like the side of julia or the cenobites with their sort of snm imagery and stuff like that sex is more built into this as opposed to like other horror movies to try and ward off of it from around this time uh, yeah, no, 100%. I mean, in Friday the 13th, Nightmare, Halloween, all that, sex was almost used as a detriment. Like, yeah. you have sex, you die. Like, that's it. In this movie, everybody has sex. <laughs> like, this is a very sexual fucking movie. And the thing is, even about the, the Frank and Julia flashbacks, which they're great, uh, but they're the reason why the movie is an R-rated, not NC-17. Well, there was a lot of, like, sort of the controversy about, like, the edits and stuff about, like, a lot of those sex scenes. Yes, the the amount of thrusts was too much. That's insane. Like, she's wearing a bra. You see his back. There's no nudity, but it's just implied they're having sex, and, you know, you can't do that. This movie's so inherently sexual in so many other places than that scene. Like, come on. We haven't mentioned much, but, like, the sort of gory effects work here, which is phenomenal in this movie. There's oh, so many amazing. great examples of, like, where the big sort of, like, gore explosions that happen almost feel at the same time like orgasms. With stuff like when Frank, like, blows mm-hmm. apart at the end, some of these other things were, like, oh. it feels like the, the gore is inherently tied to, like, a sort of sexual pent-up explosion that just bursts out at the same time. It's all, like, really intertwined. The best thing, like, one of the most incredible practical effects sequences in a movie is Frank rising up from uh, the the wood panels. It's amazing. Filmed in reverse. Right. For the most part. And it still holds up. It's still scary. That fucking scream he lets out when he's half a skeleton is terrifying. Terrifying. But it's amazing. And at the same time, it also has a sexual imagery to it because they're like rising up in an Mm -hmm. upright stance. Like it's like basically an erection metaphor at the same time. It's all phallic. A hundred percent. Read any Clive Barker book. It's phallic. Does Clive Barker have a fascination with penises? I wasn't aware. No, I no, he doesn't. I discovered that myself, and that's my new uh, my thesis I'm writing 
Uh, it's not approved <laughs> by anybody. <laughs> Several citations are needed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like you said, this movie did make a lot of money, uh, but there is a steady drop down as far as how much money they made going forward. Because honestly, out of the era it came, and maybe even nowadays, other than Clyde Barker's own works like Candyman and things like that, how many just sexually charged horror movies that aren't out in the open, though? Like, it's sexually charged, but it's not constant nudity. It's not constant this. Like, but the whole movie feels sexual. It's not a horror movie thing that happens that often. Not as much in, like, sort of, like, the mainstream horror stuff. No, I agree. It's definitely a lot more, like, these sort of, like, interesting, more um, underground sort of things. Or even when there is, like, a sexuality in a mainstream horror movie, it's more built in, like, a more romantic way. Like, even Interview with a Vampire. Right. Maybe, like, about a decade after this. It's in your face. Where this is subtext. In a weird way, because it's openly sexual, but you don't realize the scenes that aren't supposed to be sexual, or that you would think are sexual, are sexual. I mean, I, I, I would say it's very textual with particularly the Frank-Julia relationship. That's very, like, obviously textual. But I'm, I'm saying even every scene where Frank's hand is cut, it's penetrated to where they're shoving the mattress up the stairs. To where I mean, it's constant sexual undertones, the whole film. Right, I mean, and even, like, a lot of the stuff with, like, Frank having the weird fascination with Kirstie, where it's, like, even a darker side of sexuality, with the incestuous element of it, which becomes even more upsetting once Andrew Robinson takes over, which I think that's the big thing, is, like, his performance is so fascinating, where we talked about earlier, kind of a dweeb, also kind of an asshole in terms of just stuff like, oh, hey, you know, uh, we're going up here, like, maybe someone should get us a beer. There's a pause, it's like, fine, I'll get it, I guess I'm not doing anything. Just, like, very clearly into, like, sort of more traditional yeah. roles for, like, men and women. And then by the time we get to him as Frank, it becomes so much more lascivious and upsetting and disturbing. Oh, it's so gross and weird, where it almost looks like he's got spaghetti noodles on the back of his neck where he just put on the... Okay, it's like he's trying to glue his ha hairline together with, like, fucking weird jelly on his hairline. Oh, so and, gross. Uh, and, of course, Frank's famous uh, horror movie catchphrase being come to daddy makes it all the more upsetting when he takes on that particular version of the character. It's so gross. But, yeah, but even Andrew Robinson, where he's like, like, he's trying to fill up Julia, and uh, Julie has already seen the reincarnated Frank, and all that. She's like, I'm just not into it. I don't know what's wrong with you. No. Right. <laughs> you know? But, yeah, that flip. I mean, it's such a great performance. He's so creepy and so weird. The come to daddy. And just the idea that one of the most famous quotes from the film, that Jesus wept, was improv. Right. It was initially like, a fuck you. And then Andrew yeah. Robinson came up with that. And Clyde Barker was like, no, do that. Fuck yeah, do that. That's way better. Because that's creepy and weird and on so many different levels, offensive. And it's perfect. Right, especially with that, like, stretched out version of his face and the explosion that happens and all this other stuff. It's, once again, leading up the whole sexual charged element of it, yeah. Uh -huh. Oh, gross. But I did I did want to touch on this, because obviously yes. the practical effects in this movie are great. The sort of cell-animated effects, not the best. Yeah, on the lightning and stuff. Yeah, when you find out they ran on the money and Clyde Barker and the visual effects artist did that in his kitchen. Right. You're like, oh, okay, that's pretty great. I mean, honestly, the only time the effects really bother me is with the, the character who, I, of the Cenobites, like, we haven't talked too much, but, like, I, I love, like, uh, Pinhead, Chatterer, the female Cenobite, Butterball. Those guys are great. I hate the engineer. 
It's such a dumb creature that looks bad and like moves badly. I, I don't like the engineer either, but I'll I'll raise you the sort of gargoyle demon thing at the end. I think it looks way worse. The gargoyle thing is like only there for like a couple shots, as opposed to the engineer they hold on the engineer. And also the engineer is like the big final Cenobite that they have to fight after like everybody else like disappears into hell or whatever. He's the final one who just shows up like, oh, I'm going to grab at you, going to grab at you. Like he's much more prominent than the fucking skeleton guy is. How much better would it be if that engineer was going, I'm going to grab at you, I'm going to grab at you, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, it almost looks like the thing at the end of um, Evil Dead 2, like the big head that pops yeah. up. No, it definitely does. It would fit better if it was like more of like a goofy character in a goofier movie, but here, just especially as like the final Cenobite they have to fight off or whatever, it's it's a weird, like, dumb note <laughs> for like that big, elaborate, like, set piece at the end to end on. Um, but you know what? We've talked a lot about Hellraiser. We have to talk about a whole other movie. Adam, uh, any final thoughts you can possibly sum up on the original Hellraiser? I mean, I, I love it. I love it so much. Um, it got me uh, into Clive Barker. I think I own every book he's written. Um, I've seen every movie that he's attached to. I own a Hellraiser poster signed by most of the principal cast. Oh, did you meet all of them? I did. Wow, okay. thanks for asking. Yeah, I didn't talk about that. Hey, Thomas, I met most of the cast from Hellraiser. Oh my god, I wasn't aware of this information! I know! How awesome. But um, once I got into horror, I was always like, uh, and started going to conventions, I was like, I gotta be Clyde Barker. And I got to do it. It, it means a lot to me. I, I absolutely love Clyde Barker. I love the man himself. I love his works. And, and uh, for that, I mean, with all its faults, and it's sort of, you know dated effects and all that it's still a perfect film for me it is one i watch every year sometimes several times a year but definitely in halloween time i will watch hellraiser i love it yeah i think uh it's a great movie in terms of like really building up the mystique about the cenobites and sort of what their fascination is with that line between pain and pleasure and like melding that so much i think like that and also how that really um sprinkles off into our various human characters and how they have these various like conflicts with each other about their own desires um with like you know we we briefly touch up like i love so much about like claire higgins this julia character how much is this weird fascination but animosity with the people around her that like whether it be like frank or you know the various people in her family at the same time like all these characters have very specific interesting motivations that really drive this plot forward in very bizarre ways that most other horror movies wouldn't do around this time except for the cenobites being like as sort of neutral but at the same time very focused on like we have to have you know some kind of retribution for this box being opened we need like you know there's a quarter count like two people open this box we need two people to fucking come with us like all that really builds this like really fascinating horror movie that's so unique especially for the time and doesn't feel like it could really be replicated despite how many sequels that were made this one still stands the test of time as like the best least because it's doing certain things that were very new for the time and still aren't often done as much with horror in general with a lot of the sexual imagery and even some like the, the gorgeous gory practical effects all this other stuff it is very much 
and original in its own right, uh, down to even something like, we mentioned sort of the score vaguely earlier, but fucking Christopher Young's score in this movie makes Perfect. up for like sort of the lack of budget. It's like this big, massive operatic it's score. great. And it all helps build up this big world that Clyde Barker's trying to show, despite this taking place mostly in one house, and like a couple of times where we move away from it. But it's it's a, it's a great movie, I definitely can see why, you know, it and the lead Cenobite is where it became such an iconic staple of horror. But, let's get into our next feature, the fourth film on the franchise, Hellraiser Bloodline. Centuries ago, a toy maker set out to build the perfect puzzle box. A gift that would bring enchantment to all who possessed it. He never dreamed that this simple toy was the key to the gates of hell. Oh my God. Do I look like someone who cares what God thinks? Now, centuries later, a scientist has unlocked its secret. And the battle for the future of mankind is about to be fought across the boundaries of time. Welcome to oblivion. Hellraiser. <laughs> Bloodline. So, Hellraiser Bloodline uh, came out March 8th, 1996, uh, from credited director Alan Smithy. Prolific director at this point. Uh, though, that is the pseudonym... Uh, if you're unaware, uh, that is used a lot in especially movies from like the 60s through the 90s for like if a director does not want to have their credited name on the film because uh, it was directed by Kevin Yeager, um, who was a special effects guy who did a lot of work, particularly like he designed Chucky in the original Child's Play and also worked on the previous Hellraiser movies. Um, and this is his first normally directorial film uh, because uh, Hellraiser Bloodline, after Hellraiser 2 and Hellraiser 3 Hell on Earth, um, this is uh, the fourth film that uh, had an infamous production, which involved basically Clive Burke originally pitching an idea of like a multi-generational sort of storyline about like the origin of the puzzle box and then leading into like a, a story in our modern times of 1996 at that point, and then a story in the future. Future, and uh, they shot it originally in sort of like a chronological order based on a script that had been written based on Clyde Barker's story. And that production was already like hellish, had a lot of different issues that were going on. But then um, at this point, the franchise was owned by Miramax. Yeah, the, the, the Weinsteins uh, were uh, not a fan of the film in its form at that point, so they organized for a lot of re-edits and reshoots that were not done by Kevin Yeager. They were done by Joe Chappelle, uh, who had just worked for the Weinsteins on the brilliant horror sequel, uh, Halloween 6. Oh, Mwah, chef, yes. Perfect. Well, it's so great. Um, and uh, yeah, there was a lot of tumultuous stuff where this movie was very heavily re-edited and screwed around with and bombed horribly um, for its $9.3 million budget, only made $4 million, uh, thus confirming that if any more Hellraiser movies were to come out, which they were in 2000, Hellraiser Inferno came out straight to video where the franchise has been ever since. And this one has a lot of infamy too, especially with like the sort of Hellraiser in space element, which is like only a third of the movie, but it's still like kind of like the more infamous element of it. Uh, but despite that sort of like reputation, a lot of people don't like this movie very much. And I had it as a bad pick. Uh, Adam, I believe you're kind of more of a fan of Bloodline though. Yeah, I kind of dig it, man. Like, <laughs> I, uh, like, look, 
but I look at it as, as a whole, like compared to all the other sequels we've gotten, I think Bloodline is one of the best ones. Like I would put one, two in Bloodline instead of getting to the Cinnabites backstory, which it's one of those things I don't want to know. I don't, I, I like them as the entity they are, but yeah, do I want to see who made the puzzle box and why he made it and all that? Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. I want to see that. Like, I think it's kind of a cool idea that the person who made the lament configuration, their bloodline is now cursed and it's going to follow them no matter what, because they made this key to open up into this reality of hell. I I think it's kind of cool. Is it silly in a lot of parts? Sure. Is it great? No. But I think it gets unjustly hated. Like, there's no reason. Like, oh, space. And people put this on the line of, like, Leprechaun in space. Like, no, 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 no. Or even Jason X. No, 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 no. I'd put this above any of the other horror movies that went to space. But like you said, it's a third of the movie at best. It, I, I think it's actually a pretty cool movie. I love the idea of those aristocrats that have the this sort of the box built and they're into black magic and all of that. Adam Scott, super funny. And I like the Cenobite design in this. I love the way the 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 princess of hell looks i love the twins uh the only one i don't like i don't like the chatter dog but whatever who cares but i i think this is a pretty solid sequel well i'll say this which i agree with you that it's not like necessarily the worst even of like the theatrically released movies i would put this over hellraiser 3 necessarily uh-huh. but i think the thing that makes this distinct and notable is i would say it's the most ambitious of any of the hellraiser sequels and more crucially even if you didn't know any of the like behind the scenes stuff, this is clearly the messiest of these Hellraiser movies as well. Because I think even for like there are worse Hellraiser movies than this, but at the same time, I can give credit to some of those worse Hellraiser movies know what they are and don't feel necessarily as like cobbled together as this one does. I would say. I think there are some that are like obviously like far worse in quality, but this one feels the most like you had such a massive ambition, but there's so much clear like weirdly edited things. Like I, I agree with you that I like a lot of the stuff about them commissioning the Lament configuration in like 1700s France, but that is so truncated, and it, that was very much the case where like a lot of the stuff that's on the cutting room floor is from that section, and it feels right. like so bizarrely small in the movie. Um, then the stuff that's in the present day, I think, is the stuff that like works the most like consistently in terms of like I feel like there's a beginning and middle end to that particular element of the movie. I think like the a lot of the sequences are like the most complete of any sort. And then the space stuff, I think, is like there's some fun moments, but that's the stuff where I can see the most studio meddling. So much like the happy ending and a lot of these sequences where it's like these weird space police raiders that are going around. Like, who the fuck are these guys? What is this? Like, they never explain anything about that. Like, at all. <laughs> who these fuckers are. They, they really, really don't. No, and it's very much feels like, all that stuff feels so much like, oh, we're just trying to rip off aliens in the middle of a Hellraiser movie. It's really bizarre and weird, especially when it's like, it's not even in the middle of a Hellraiser movie, it's in the last, like, 20 minutes of this hour, 25 minute long movie. Have you peeped the designs for the aristocrats, Cenobites? Well, I've seen some of the work print stuff, where particularly like, the Angelique character was, like, apparently the person who actually commissioned the box. But there's photos you could find, and it's the Cenobites and they're dressed in 
period clothing, even with the the wigs and stuff, and their faces are stretched and they're okay. bleeding. Like it's pretty cool. And I guess all that got cut. It's very sloppy. It's very messy. Although Doug Bradley kind of slays the shit in this movie. Doug Bradley's pinhead in this might be his best performance since the first one. Right. I, I would agree with you that like this is at a point where obviously like I mentioned, like in Hellraiser 2, they start kind of giving the the Cenobites a bit more humanity, which I'm not for necessarily, but I do love the fact that they implement that here with Pinhead, where like Pinhead is so pissed off in this fucking movie <laughs> about how much like bullshit is going wrong. He's very, He's very upset about just like what the fuck's happening. <laughs> I I had a thing, I have a system, and this Angelique lady comes out of fucking nowhere and is starting to like fuck with my shit. Like this is my shit. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. <laughs> but I, I think that's what works for him. But it's not like an over-the-top anger. Like, it's just through his vocal performance. You're like, he's tired. He had a shitty day at work, and he's very upset that people are fucking with, like, the system he created for the work, like, for the office. Like, this is supposed to work like this, and you're all fucking uh-huh. with the system I created. I had a whole presentation. Anyone come to the meeting? Anyone get the memo? I guess not. TPS reports, what the fuck does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) Right, and I I like a lot of the scenes. Apparently there was a lot more sequences between him and Angelique, who is the sort of a demonic entity that initially, um, there's like a peasant girl who's in like the 1700s that is possessed by this demon Angelique, Uh, but uh, Valentina Vargas, I think, is so fun in this movie, and all the scenes between her and Doug Bradley are really cool. She's great, but not even that. Even the scenes with her when she's eating, she's doing like the ooh, ooh, and moaning and stuff. Like she's camping it up to a level that makes it believable because she's this person in this weird circumstance. And then what she becomes, Angelique, and dude, when she shoves her thumb into Adam Scott's face, yes, you're like oh, she's serious. <laughs> like, 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 oh, shit is shit is popping off. Yeah, I love Angelique, and I love the idea that they do with the practical effects of her crown, the scalp flayed down to show the skull. I mean, it's amazing. It's it's a really cool cinematic design. All the cinematic designs are really good in this. Uh, down to like you mentioned, the twins who are these two security guards who become like this weird, like mutated version of like conjoined twins who are like literally have like a little like fucking thing that's like connecting their heads. Like, the weird twisted flesh and shit like that. It's so weird, bizarre, in the way they killed that one guy by, like, throuppling and sandwiching him. Yeah, great. But again, sexual. Right. I mean, I, I'd argue this is probably the last of the movies. You know, obviously, it's a theatrical one. Well, I don't know, man. Inferno is really sexual, too. But I'd argue this was the last one that had, like, the sort of subtlety with the sexuality. And the rest kind of... Shove it in your face. A subtle is never a word I would ever use to describe any element of this movie. <laughs> no, no, no. I well, all of these movies are sexual. Like obvious, we know that. But this one didn't have the nudity. But as you go forward with five to wherever the fuck we're at now, the sexuality is so like pushed to the forefront. It's there's no. The feeling behind it. It's just, oh, it's sexy, so here's sex, sex. That's why I didn't like part three. Because part three was all sex, 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 sex. I think the thing that works about Hellraiser the most is when the sexuality is always there, but is not necessarily pushed to the forefront. 
I guess the difference is like in like the original two movies, and I'd say even this one, there's more at least a mind to like the actual like psychology behind sexuality as opposed to uh-huh. like sort of teenage boy sexuality, where it's just like, oh, look, there are boobs. Look, boobs. There are boobs there, there. Right, yeah, so there feels like there's a bit more in its mind with sort of like the sexuality and like the psychological element of it. I can I can definitely see that. Um, I, I think also just another thing with this movie is um, our main character sort of plays like three different versions of the Marchant character. Uh, through different, uh, and he's terrible. Uh, Bruce Ramsey, yeah, not a good actor. Um, I think he's fine in like the present day stuff, but when he's asked to be Victorian era French, and then also later on, like the fucking like, oh, I'm the the shaved head, like I'm the only badass space guy who can help you out. Those are terrible performances. Basically, he's in the fountain at that point. <laughs> yeah. No, he's terrible. The present day stuff, like he's okay. But that's the thing. I guess that's kind of what the Hellraiser franchise became, right? Like, you want to see the Cenobites. They didn't put too much stock into the leads or the the human characters. Which is a problem given, like, the earlier movies had that kind of interest, at least, in, like, the human characters that, like, helped build up to the Cenobites. Versus right. when you have especially, like, Pinhead and the Cenobites in, like, bigger roles. Like, Hellraiser 3 is more guilty of this, but this one also has a bit of that. Like, you remove a bit of the mystique the more they're on screen which I feel like is a problem. Like, it, it feels just like, oh, like, these mysterious creatures from hell, but, like, the more we get of them sort of, like, having the office politics, like, more directly in our face, <laughs> the more yeah. it's just kind of like, oh, I, yeah. they're not as, like, mysterious and fun as we thought they were. Well, when you get 30 minutes of them, you're like, okay, all right, we're good. But, but, but at the same time, I respect the fact that Pinhead doesn't have, like, an actual role in this movie, as opposed to in various later sequels. Pinhead kind of feels like one of those characters who are, like, NPCs in a video game that you would run into. Where it's I just agree. like, oh, look, Pinhead's here. Like, and he's like, hey, go over there to this part of the plot. <laughs> and then, Take this. It will help you on your journey. Right. That, that's his, pretty much his role. <laughs> like, 90% of the last few Hellraiser movies after this. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, as opposed to here, he has more of, like, an actual role and has a bit more of, like, a mind to him, necessarily. He feels like an angry dad in this movie. Right. Which I like. He's in control, but he's not. He still has to answer to the hell priestess or, you know, the princess, as he calls her. So she's kind of his boss, but... Like, he's just so over it, like... Well, and you also get the sense that given that she's, like, a demon versus a Cenobite, like, you get the sense of, like, oh, these are different sects of hell. These are, like, different creatures despite the fact they're of hell. Like, they're from various different levels. She was born a demon, whereas Pinhead was somebody who solved the box and became a Cenobite, which I also hate. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a fan of that re- reveal in uh, Hellraiser no. 2. Yeah, hate that, that's... The bit where he says, I remember, is the moment where I feel like, oh, this is a bad turn. <laughs> this isn't, like, really working for the rest of these movies. Then you got Shinard going, for, like, 20 minutes. Well, and also doing puns and shit that, like, feel very much of, like, the Freddy Krueger's rejected scraps. 100%. The doctor is in and shit like that. Um, but to get back to Hellraiser Bloodline, um, at, at the same time, yeah, th- there's interesting elements. Like I do love the scene where they do turn um, the the peasant woman into Angelique, and you have like the the one guy with the bouffant sort of giant uh, hair, like setting up all the traps and stuff. And meanwhile, once again, like Adam Scott 
is like it's his first movie and he's going so hard as possible. There's a great like Conan interview where he talks about the fact that he's like, oh, this is like me breaking to the big time. This is gonna be my big thing. We're like, after this, guys, it's fine. Don't worry, I'm still Adam. And but he's actually really good in it. Uh, like I don't, I don't think he's terrible. Look, there's been way worse acting in the previous movies and way worse acting in the latter. Right. I don't think that excuses him from necessarily not being, like, great, but I think he's entertaining in the movie. Is it because we know it's Adam Scott which makes it entertaining? I think that's part of it, but also I've never been huge on Adam Scott in dramatic roles, necessarily. I, I think, no. like, anytime he's presented himself as, like, in a more dramatic sense, it does always feel like, is this a bit? Is this yeah. a fucking bit, dude? Yeah, I get like, that. Like, down to uh, my favorite bit of him in this movie is in the 90s, where for some reason he's, like, been able to live for centuries. Another unexplained thing that I don't get. Yeah, he's a yeah whatever. Yeah. Right, but um, where he's talking to Angelique, and it's just like, oh, can I have permission, Adam Scott, to go off to America? And, nah, fuck America. Stay here. He's got that terrible hair. That long, scraggly, greasy hair. Yeah, no, it's awful. It's awful. It's so funny. And then when, even when he's getting murdered, it's just like, ah, oh, God. He's like, Yo. burst of and she murders the fuck out of him. With her, like, very sharp nails, yeah. And then sucks on the wound. Right. Like, it's so gross, but, again, so sexual in nature. Like, ugh. ugh. I love it, though. I, I, The thing about this movie is, out of all the Hellraiser movies, I could watch Bloodlines more than any of them, because Bloodlines is... Still has sort of the Hellraiser mythos behind it, but it's in a way the least disturbing and the least offensive out of all of them. Um, I can at least say like the the big problem after this movie is that a lot of the straight to video movies were infamously scripts that were not originally meant to be Hellraiser movies that had to be like reworked to include like the Cenobites and everything. Mm-hmm. I think some of those do it better than others in terms of integrating the Cenobites and stuff, but this one at least feels like it's one of the few sequels that's like actually trying to build up more of the mythology in terms of, like you mentioned like the puzzle box being commissioned as a specific portal to hell by these people and some of this other stuff i agree that i think like a lot of this on paper there's a lot of fascinating ideas and the an ambition that makes it definitely get high above a lot of the other hellraiser movies but still that messiness i think is also kind of frustrating because unlike a lot of the other like sort of sequels that would happen after this you feel like there's a better movie in this one as opposed to, like, oh, no, there's no saving this, even with a big budget. Like, something like, you know, uh, Hellraiser Hellworld wouldn't be saved necessarily by a massive budget. No, I can agree with that. Um, I think the biggest detriment to this film is the space stuff. Yeah. If they would just cut that out and gone from past to modern day, I think this movie would be legit, dude. Or even have, like, the, the sort of space stuff as, like, a more of, like, a final set piece as opposed to being, like, an yeah. entire third of the movie, necessarily. It basically, stuff from, like, the 1700s and the stuff from Space Switched Runtimes, basically, in prominence, I think it would be a much better movie. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Because, um, yeah, there's even in the space stuff, there is some fun things. Like, I love the dumb, like, uh, robot that's being used to solve the lament configuration. Yeah, that's a and cool the- idea. Right, particularly the bit where, like, the robot looks at the camera after it's solved, like, and then explodes. (laughs) Great. I mean, what a cool idea that these things come out and you have them contained. Like, how creepy, and you can see it, and then, like, they do the little girl's voice and all that. Like, it's very creepy and sinister. 
It's just I feel this movie wants to go to ten, and I feel they stop at seven. Which I think obviously is due to a lot of like, the executive meddling stuff. That oh sure, in, like like particularly with the whole ending where help Pinhead's like I can't die, but no, they solve the cube around him. Yeah, because <laughs> the sun the sun kills Pinhead. Like, wait a minute, what the fuck is happening here? Um, yeah, and I think that's a lot of the stuff, like you mentioned, like, sort of the, the reputation of that, and the executive meddling, the Alan Smithy credit, Cinebites go to space, um, I think is, like, what kind of hurts the reputation of this movie, necessarily, but, um, at the same time, yeah, I think because of its ambition, it has, like, a lot of fascinating, like, elements to it, like, even the stuff in the present day, where you sort of have, like, the, the Cinebites kind of, like, appearing behind corners and stuff of, like, the present day, or, like, particularly how weirdly creepily they're like around uh courtland mead who plays the son of the present day era the puzzle maker guy um credit to also courtland mead most famous probably for a lot of people where he played danny torrance in the shining miniseries yeah oh yeah he did i don't like that and he was also in like little rascals and he was the voice of gus on recess which was a show i watched as a kid (laughs) like that kid instantaneously looks like 90s kid like if you have like 90s character actor kid immediately he looks like that (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's a little good little bucktooth monster. With a bowl cut. God, why, why was that a thing? <laughs> and and also credit to the mom, um, uh, horror royalty, Kim Myers from uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Yeah, basically uh, Dollar Store and Meryl Streep. Right, yes. Um, even though in this movie she looks more like Dollar Stool and Ed O'Toole. Yeah, she really does. Yeah. Right. She, she does. But at the same time, she's like doing as much as she can against Bruce Ramsey, which is like, I'm really concerned about you like getting into your work. Don't worry about it. I'm doing great. <laughs> <laughs> like, which is another problem. Like, there definitely are like uh, sort of like lead character problems in a lot of these Hellraiser sequels. Like, I think that's even a problem with like Inferno, where if that guy wasn't the main character in Inferno, I think that movie would be kind of great. As opposed to that guy is like what? so bad. Craig Schaffer? Yes, uh, the lead of Nightbreed. I'm sorry for insulting Clive Barker acting royalty. No, he's terrible. Like that. He's terrible. <laughs> he's terrible. Um, but yeah, do you think, sort of, if they were to ever construct, I guess, like the original vision of Kevin Yeager with some of like, there's like, you know, work print footage and stuff, do you think there is like a truly great Hellraiser movie in this one? No. I feel there's a perfectly competent Hellraiser movie, but I honestly think, well, because I'm very trepidatious about the new one coming out. It looks great. Like, it looks great. I'm super excited. But if you're not the man who wrote it, the man who did it, like, it's a very hard thing to sort of convey, and then it just becomes horror slasher jump scare garbage. Well, from what I understand, Clyde Barker was actually involved in the new movie, as opposed to, like, most of the ones after this one. I know he was. But still, we'll see. I mean, I have very high hopes for it. I mean, nothing else. I'm very curious, because it's, like, David Bruckner doing it, who was the guy that did, like, The Night House and The Ritual, I think is a very solid uh, horror director. So I think there's, like, more of a chance for that to work, but we'll we'll see on that. Um, As opposed to, I guess, we're not talking that much more about Hellraiser Bloodline, so final thoughts, Adam, on Hellraiser Bloodline. Out of the theatrical released Hellraiser movies, I would put it at number two. I'd even put it above Hellbound, uh, because the Dr. Chouinard stuff is ridiculous. Uh, But I think Bloodline gets unjustly shit upon. Like, I think it's fun. I think it's fine. There's things that I would 
take out of it or change, but I'm not the guy who made it. Uh, it exists as it is, and I think it's it's actually pretty solid. Um, yeah, I have more, I guess, mixed feelings, clearly, on this. I would definitely still say it's, like, third for me of the theatrical releases, despite my issues with Hellbound. There's still, like, so many more, like, fascinating, weird, like, divergent, particularly when Kirsty goes into, like, the weird dimension in Hellbound, there's a lot of, like, fun, bizarre things, like the weird carnival and shit, and the baby who sewed its mouth shut and shit. Like, there's still, like, more interesting, fun imagery, and that that would put, I guess, a bit above Bloodline, because, like I said, Bloodline is such a fucking massive mess of a movie that I don't think it can ever quite be like solid to me but i still find it fascinating as like a weird object of once again like all the studio meddling and all sorts of stuff but at the same time the creative ideas still like pop out at you at certain points there's still like fun elements that pop out that still make it a cut above most of the other hellraiser movies that would follow but at the same time i would still say uh it's still the messiest one out of any of them well that's where the popcorn pops indeed Indeed. But now, Adam, it's time for our weekly segment, The Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double 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 Redo. Redo. So, the Double Review is a segment we do every week, uh, in which Adam and I uh, talk about a good and a bad feature uh, related to the topic in question, so in this case, Hellraiser. Uh, Adam and I each have a good and a bad pick to talk about from this massive franchise, Uh, so I'll go ahead and go first uh, with my two choices. Um, For my good that I would recommend to everybody, I have, as of this recording, the most recent Hellraiser film, and I think one that got a bit unfairly shit upon as well, well, as we were talking about with Bloodline. I have Hellraiser Judgment, which uh, came out in 2018, uh, the most recent uh, straight-to-video release, uh, that I think a lot of the hate toward it came from a lot of bad will from the previous movie, which we'll be talking about in a moment from Adam's Choices. It's directed by uh, Gary J. Tunnicliffe, um, who was a guy who had worked in the special effects department for a lot of the earlier movies and was really trying to like get a version of his sort of like Hellraiser script put out there. And this was in production hell for a bit um, for that. But um, he eventually got it made as Hellraiser Judgment, which introduces these new elements of like the auditor, which basically at the start of this movie, Pinhead's talking to another sort of hellish creature who was like, oh my God, so many people are like being awful and shitty and disturbing, like on various different like technological screens at this point in time. I can't handle all this shit. Can you like <laughs> streamline damnation for me please and the otter who's played by uh the director as well um is such a fun character and i love like the initially how he's introduced as this guy who's like processing basically like an awful like serial killer pedophile uh human character and how he goes through like all these various different like trials or through the system of like okay the otter asks questions and then this other guy comes in like basically eats his testimony (laughs) and then leading into like all this other weird shit that happens along the line. I think all of that like stuff to add like sort of more bureaucracy into Hellraiser is so fascinating. I love how that's all really unleashed. I think there are problems with the movie, particularly with like sort of the, the main human stories is kind of like seven esque detective story that I'm not the hugest fandom necessarily. I think that's the most perfunctory sort of like procedural cop stuff that makes this not a great movie. But at the same time, the guy who plays like the main sort of detective who they are 
trying to audit at a certain point, I think he's a pretty solid actor against like all these like weird, bizarre elements. And even with like a mystery that I think is weird and perfunctory, I think all the stuff that's like really underneath about like what sort of uh, hell has become and the system of judging people for their damnation is so cool and adds a whole nother layer to the series. Like there's even a bit of heaven introduced into it that's like very new for the franchise. That I think it takes a lot of interesting risks and is a lot better than a lot of the other direct-to-video sequels because it takes these new interesting turns to like really develop more about like how has hell changed basically over the course of centuries how does hell work with all the various different new avenues where people can be depraved and awful and shitty and i find that interesting and i find it very underrated in terms of the hellraiser movies um but then my bad is i would say one of the two hellraisers particularly the directed video ones that i do not like um it is hellraiser deader which this one is, I think, the textbook example where, like I mentioned earlier, so many of these directed video movies were existing scripts that had, like, the Cenobites, like, shoehorned into them. Some, I think, do it better than others. This is one of the worst examples where it is so clear, like, it's this whole story about, like, a journalist looking up about this cult that can bring people back to life. Basically, like, they murder somebody and then instantly, like, bring them back to life as, as she sees, like, a VHS tape. And it feels so perfunctory to Hellraiser. Like, it's already a bad movie about that subject matter already. That then when, like, Pinhead and the Cenobites come into it, it feels so perfunctory. It feels, like, so dull. And it's one of those, once again, where, like, even if you would have this, like, a theatrical, bigger-budget movie, it would not work. I think it's very dull, very visually bland. Just even with its, like, meager expectations, like, this is, at this point, like, the second straight-to-video one after Inferno, which I said has some problems, but I think is better than a lot of the other ones. Deader sets a bad precedent for a lot of these other ones to follow. I don't think too many of them are quite as bad as Deader. The title alone is so fucking dumb. <laughs> the cult is called Deader? What does that fucking mean? This is so, so awful. I mean, yeah, dude. I mean, Judgment, I like it I'm in the idea that the new Cenobites or whatever they introduce are very weird. Like, it's so against type of the Cenobites we've ever seen, but they kind of fit in a weird way because it's this new level of hell. Things are changing. Like you said, with the Auditor, I love that character. And I also love the character that comes out of the backpack. You know, yes. where he comes, he's, it's so fucking cool. And I love that it's uh, John Gulliger, Clue Gulliger's son, who directed Feast, is the one who's eating the, the papers and vomiting right. them up and everything. Like, very cool, very weird, disturbing. I agree this sort of tacked on seven aspect is a little silly. You see it, it's stereotypical. But it's still cool. Like, it, it works. I think that it's a very competently made film. Deader, oh, God, God. I mean, it's just a bore fest. Carrie Wurr, how, how many of these terrible direct-to-video fucking horror sequels are you going to do? Like, stop. Deader. 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 So spooky, deader. Oh, deader. <laughs> Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Gravedigger versus deader. Like, it's so stupid. And it's boring. I've seen it twice, and I, I'm telling you right now, the only thing I remember is there's a subway scene. It's that forgettable. Uh, one, one other thing I wanted to shout out about Judgment, though, sure. before we continue to your picks. I like the guy who they got to play Pinhead. I think of the so far, the only two people post-Doug Bradley who have played him, I think he's solid. Especially because I like in this one, Pinhead basically feels like a guy who like got a promotion for being yeah. a Cenobite. 
it's just yeah. like, oh, that, now you can do my menial work. We'll create a whole new wing of hell just so you can do shit. And like, whenever the auditor comes up, like, excuse me, uh, lead sender by, can I talk to you? He's like sitting around just like, yeah, well, whatever. Yeah. He's just right. like, he's an executive at this point. <laughs> Who's not doing anything? <laughs> yeah, he's okay. He's okay. I mean, it's hard to fill Doug Bradley's shoes, you know what I mean? Right, but there's a worse example, which I believe you'll get to oh. with your choices. Okay, so I'll, I'll go with my good first. My good was the sixth of the Hellraiser franchises, Hellraiser Hellseeker, which stars Dean Winters, which everybody knows as, like, chaos from the commercials. He's also in... Um, excuse me, I believe it's Mayhem, sir. Mayhem! Mayhem! But he's also in, like, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's, he's popped up everywhere. John Wick as well. John Wick, right. He's, he's great. Ashley Lawrence is back in this one. It's not great, but it's entertaining. It's kind of a cool twist they do where you know what's going on, but he's a spoiler. But where he's in his own personal hell, like that's kind of a cool idea. Is it carried off to the best it could be? No, but they're working with the budget they did. And I think it's it, it's kind of fun. I'm shortening that one because I... Whew, all right, here we go. Okay. Hellraiser Revelations, which was part of the Dimension Extreme, uh, because they had to keep the rights, so they put this one out. And the biggest thing I remember about this before I saw it, because their tagline was from the mind of Clive Barker. And Clive Barker came out right after that came out and said, this isn't for my mind. It's not even born out of my asshole. Why is he that angry? Watch the movie. It is horrible. It is terrible. It does several things I hate. But one of the, my biggest things I hate in horror movies, where they like make a family name after someone prominent in horror, just so you'd be like, oh, I know that name. In this movie, I, th- I, it's the Cravens and the Carpenters, or whatever the fuck. It's terrible. And then there's like an incestual thing that happens. The guy who's playing Pinhead is terrible and the the makeup is awful the cgi they're trying to do is terrible i've seen every movie that's come out from all of the main franchises i i'm one of those guys i love them i'm a completionist bar none this is bottom of the barrel garbage it is garbage it's offensive on every level being a hellraiser fan a horror movie fan a film fan it's garbage. It is a piece of shit. And I hate it. And I hate that I'm talking about it. And I just want to go to bed now. Hell Secret, to go back to that, I agree that I think that one is definitely the best of the direct-to-video ones. I would say that forms a nice trilogy with Hellraiser and um, Hellbound Hellraiser 2. And then Hellseeker is like an actual solid trilogy, obviously because Ashley Lawrence returns in there. But I also do really like, like you kind of mentioned, like the stuff with Dean Winters. What I like is that they kind of play it like it's almost memento where he doesn't really remember what happened earlier. And the whole movie's about him realizing who he actually is and what actually happened, uh, ultimately, with, like, his missing wife, who is Kirsty. Um, I, I like a lot of those elements. I think it does, I agree, with its smaller budget. I think it does as much as it can. And that was uh, Rick Boda, I believe, is the director saying, who did 6, 7, and 8, I believe. Um, and it's such a fascinating, weird breath between like that uh, that one debtor and um, and uh, Hellworld are all such weird, bizarre ways of doing a Hellraiser movie that most of them don't work. But Hellseeker is definitely, I would agree, the best example of that. And Hellraiser Revelation was uh, definitely 
when I was going through this, this was what I feared every one of these direct-to-video sequels would be, in terms of just, like, there is, like, such a creative bankruptcy to it. Because even, like, the basic premise, if you're unaware, is that it's, like, two families are, like, coming together because it's, like, oh, um, like, our sons, who are both friends, died or, like, have been gone missing. And we're both, like, kind of trying to have a dinner to, you know, sort of emotionally support ourselves. And then one of them shows up randomly. One of the two sons who disappeared from one of the families shows up. And it's so obvious what they're doing with that character. And even, like, the incestuous thing you're mentioning, it's all, like, this very weird version of, like, the original movie that just feels, like, so, like, pasted together because this was the key example of, like, a franchise rights holder movie. Because Hellworld was, like, 2005. This is 2011. So if Dimension didn't make this movie, they wouldn't be able to keep the Hellraiser rights. And it is so slapped together. It fucking shows. Like, God bless the guy who they got to play Pinhead. Not good, but also I feel so bad for him in that puffy-ass makeup that makes fucking Pinhead look like he's having a shellfish allergic reaction. (laughs) The whole movie, I'm just like, give him an EpiPen. For the love of God, give this guy some kind of fucking help. He had some bad crab ragoons. Right, he's some kind of food poisoning. God help this, you give him to a hospital. Despite being like only like 75 minutes long, it feels the longest out of any of these. Like all these Hellraiser movies, the longest one of them is like 100 minutes, I think. Like Bloodline, I believe, is 100 minutes long. This one feels at least 10 times as long. <laughs> Wait a minute. Revelation is only 75 minutes long? It's barely a fucking movie. <laughs> oh my God. Like it legitimately feels like a chore to get through. Like I was watching it on it's only it's available to stream on Tubi. That's how I watched it. Like I was I was begging for more Tubi commercials. Like no, get get Craig Robinson singing about game and all these other bullshit commercials. Like that. I usually like wait until they're done. I want more of that instead of watching the actual movie I'm watching. Oh, yeah. So uh, let's go ahead and repeat our titles for everybody out there. Uh, for my good, I had Hellraiser Judgment, and for my bad, I had Hellraiser Debtor. And for my good, I had Hellraiser Hellseeker. And for my bad, I had Hellraiser Revelations. Just don't watch it, guys. No, don't watch it. Even if you're a completionist, we would not recommend uh, skip past that one, for sure, to go to Judgment. The much better one. The one that I think, like, suffered because Hellraiser Revelations was so bad, everyone's like, oh, fuck any more Hellraiser movies. And I think Judgment got bad rap because they had to follow up that bullshit, quite frankly. Um, But... Uh, we want to, you know, uh, go ahead and start doing our wrap-up, but keep in mind, uh, we'll be doing our picking for next week's episode at the end of this one, so stay tuned. Uh, first, though, we got to thank some people, like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Uh, follow him at Night of Water, that's Night with a K, underscore of, underscore water, for more of his great stuff on various socials. And, of course, thanks also to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash dedvpod, where for just $1 a month, you all get to do stuff like vote in polls for movies and topics we cover, like you all picked uh, Hellraiser Bloodline for us to cover here, so we appreciate that. Right uh, this week that we're releasing this episode, uh, you all get to pick one of my good choices for uh, next month. We should announce this, Adam. We're doing another theme month after our horror month of October in November. We're going to be doing all repeat topics, topics we've done previously that we want to revisit, and we're calling it Revember. 
Hold for applause for that great title that I came up with. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. But um, you all get to pick for one of the episodes we're revisiting something. Uh, it's going to be spoof movies. We're coming back to that for the first time in quite a while on the show. Uh, you all get to pick between my two good choices on that one. And uh, my two good choices are uh, the Zucker, Abram Zucker, underrated follow-up to Airplane, Top Secret, versus uh, Stephen Chow's very silly over-the-top martial arts movie, Kung Fu Hustle. You don't like either of them. <laughs> no. Oh. No. So, the, but to be fair, I've only seen both of them once, so it could be fun to revisit. Okay. Yeah, that'll be fascinating. So that's even more of an interest for all of you. <laughs> Pick which one uh, for Adam to reassess, as it were, um, between two movies. I personally quite enjoy, but um, you all get to vote for that, and also. Uh, Stay tuned for on the Patreon. We'll be doing another on the edge of relevance uh, for you know we've been talking about Hellraiser this whole time. We'll definitely be talking about the Hulu Hellraiser, uh, which is coming out you know this Friday as of when uh, we're putting this out. So we'll definitely uh, get together and talk about it. I cannot fucking wait for that new Hellraiser movie. You have no idea. I'm bursting through my Oshkosh bagosh right now. <laughs> and you're just like, oh man, I can't wait to see it. More importantly, meet all the people who were in it. Yeah, because I'm going to have a side of poster and I'm going to tell you all about it several times. Please find it. <laughs> Gord Vishnik. Hey, who the fuck are you? Uh, well, I uh, look forward to all of that on the Patreon for just the $1. Uh, but to find more of us, uh, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook uh, at DEDBpod. And you can also uh, submit feedback to us, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And uh, for more of me, find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at NotTheWho'sTommy. And also do some writing at uh, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at Film-Cred.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. And you can also find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-G-S-O-N. And to hear more of us, uh, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network? And you can also dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for like 200 episodes since uh, before we joined Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you uh, you know can't support us on the Patreon, we get it, money can be tight. Um, the simple free way to help us out is to rate, review, or share the show around because it gets us more visibility out there and gets us more souls to conquer yeah we like that we like that a lot it's cool <laughs> yes it's quite cool just like what's very cool is we'll be doing our picking for next week's episode adam uh so every week adam and i each have um two choices uh, one of us is two good choices one of us is two bad choices and we assign them between one and ten for um, each of our uh, choices, which we specify on the quality on for who has good, who has bad. And, um, you know, one person will pick a number between one and ten and be like, oh, I'm going to pick number six. And so the opposite person will be like, okay, that's closest to number seven, which has blank movie. And uh, that gets us our good and our bad choice. But keep in mind, we do have the Godfather rule, where Adam and I each still have a veto burning in our back pocket we have to use before our next anniversary in May. Uh, where if we hear either a good or a bad choice that we uh, pick number four, and we're like, you know what? I don't want to cover that movie. Actually, I'll take the cannoli. So if we say that, that means that choice is null and void. We have to go with whatever other choice is available, um, and uh, we can only do that once. So, you know, we got to do it before May. Got to do it. And we might do it for uh, our next in our Halloween spooky episode 
uh, topics, we are going to the world of Blumhouse, which, you know, Jason Blum and Blumhouse, it's been around for, you know, a little over a decade now and has become a huge voice in horror. So we figured it would be uh, fascinating to dip our toes into that, especially now that uh, one of their bigger productions is coming out uh, to coincide with that Halloween ends. Uh, but I have the two good choices for Blumhouse. We have the two bad ones. So, yeah. um, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm very curious where this will go. Uh, so, Adam, for my two good choices, please pick a number between one and ten. Uh, I'll go with number seven. Okay. And number eight. I have a movie that I think is criminally underrated in terms of the Blumhouse movies. It was one of the ones that they sold off to Netflix. It came out and kind of came and went, but I think is one of their better examples in their catalog. I think it's an incredible little horror movie. I have Cam. Uh, uh, okay. I don't know what that is. It is a horror movie about a um, Cam girl who ends up getting her identity stolen by a mysterious force. Oh, all right. Okay. Since I don't know what it is, I'm not going to take the cannoli. Okay. Well, on the opposite side of things, over at number three, I have a movie from one of our boys who got his start doing a lot like the Blumhouse movies and has only risen up the horror platform ladder. I have Mike Flanagan's Hush. Another one that was on Netflix. That's a good movie. It's dope. So stay tuned if you're disappointed, folks. You might hear more Mike Flanagan talk on the Patreon. Wink, wink, wink. (laughs) You never know. Well, but Adam... Now, b- bad, there's a lot of ways this could go. I'm very uh-huh. curious where this will go. So, uh, for your bad, I'm going to pick number three. All right. At number two, I have a movie that came out in 2020 based on an old sitcom. I have Fantasy Island. Oh, one of the few theatrical releases of 2020. Uh-huh. Interesting. Interesting. I have not seen Fantasy Island, and I've been kind of morbidly curious so you know what i'm not gonna take the cannoli on that all right at number 10 i have a movie that we actually watched together that i actually kind of like but i know a lot of people don't and it is very flawed i had ma oh ma yes uh, ma is very interesting I, I wouldn't say i liked it necessarily but there's there's a lot of fun to ma yeah sure. yes uh but so fantasy island and cam oh another weird double feature from us We'll get to next time, but until then, everybody, you've solved the lemon configuration for now. Your suffering will probably be legendary. I don't know. It depends. I don't know about, what, I don't know about legendary, but people, it'll be noteworthy. It depends on what your kinks are. Right. You know, no kink shaman. No kink shaman.